Children and divorce, celibacy and camels, last first, first last. Jesus is turning things upside down, this time on The Backdrop. Welcome to another episode of The Backdrop. This is Curtis, as usual. We're making our way through Matthew together, looking at the details and context that didn't fit into our sermons on the same passages. This time, we are looking at chapters 18 through 20, where Jesus touches on all sorts of controversial topics. We've got plenty to get to, so let's dive in here. Starting in chapter 18, we get Jesus responding to a question about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven by bringing out a little child. Meredith went into this in her sermon, but a couple extra things to note here. First, in our culture, we often use children as metaphors for innocence, purity, sweetness, that sort of thing. Aren't they little angels? And in that light, Jesus' words aren't all that surprising. Of course, an innocent little child is representative of the kingdom. Those were not the primary things that might spring to mind when someone in ancient Roman or Jewish cultures thought of a child. In those cultures, children were more likely to be seen as not-yet-full humans who were in need of structure and discipline. Children were those who hadn't learned to control their impulses yet, were often out of control, undignified, and who therefore needed to be controlled and instructed and trained in the right way. This is just one of the ways that Jesus' response to who is the greatest would have been head-scratching for his original hearers. And it's important for us to understand, too, because it highlights that innocence and purity are very much not what Jesus is getting at in this passage. What children were was humble and dependent. This is what Jesus actually says is the point in verse 4. Children were humble. Be like that. And that is what makes you great in the kingdom. And humility is not about self-esteem or something like that, as we might put it, how I look at myself. Rather, it's about dependence on others and on God and not grasping after higher status for yourself. A child has no social standing. Children knew that. They weren't trying to exalt themselves over others. Be humble like that. This is an object lesson of what he says in other places of the last being first. Jesus would have been hard-pressed to find someone lesser than a child to bring forward. And I think we would do well to think of who the least are in our culture and kind of replace the child with those people in this metaphor to update it into our own culture and our own world. Jesus underscores the importance of such people to God by first saying that anyone who causes a child to stumble would be better off sinking to the bottom of the sea with a millstone around their necks and then referring to their angels being in front of God's face. I read one scholar who wondered if the stumble part was a reference to two common practices in the ancient Roman world, what we would call sexual abuse and infanticide. The prevalence of those practices underscores how different their culture was from ours when it comes to children, and also just how unvalued children were. The angels piece, the angels being before God and looking on God's face, is interesting on a couple of levels. One is that Jesus is reinforcing the idea of the last being first in God's eyes. Some of you may be familiar with um, some of the representations of angels in the Old Testament and in Revelation. Sometimes they're said to have six wings, two wings to fly with, two to cover their feet, and two to cover their eyes. They cover their eyes as a way of recognizing the holiness and power of God. And since they are going to be in God's presence before God's face, even these angels need to cover their faces. 
But the angels that represent the little ones, Jesus says, they gaze on God's face directly. They are in some sense given special status and access to God. Now, what exactly it means that these angels represent the little ones and have special access to God, I think it would be foolish to speculate too much about that. Jesus isn't giving us a theology of angels here. He's underscoring the importance to God of the ones we would see as least and despised. The point is that the least on earth are the greatest before God. And then Jesus closes with the parable of the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to search out the lost one. First off, yes, shepherds would do this. They would not leave the sheep all alone, but they would leave them with, in the care of another shepherd while they went off looking for the lost one. I've sometimes heard people say that shepherds either would or would not leave their sheep like this. But I also want to highlight verse 20 from this chapter, where Jesus says that where two or three are gathered in Jesus's name, my presence will be with them. This is one of those verses that many of us have heard or quoted a million times. But one thing I learned in my research is that it was a common Jewish idea at the time to say that when two or three were studying Torah, God's presence would be with them. So Jesus has taken a common saying, substituted in my name for studying Torah, and substituted his own presence for God's presence. In other words, Jesus is quite clearly in this short verse equating himself with both the Torah and with God. Matthew then takes us to a discussion of forgiveness. Peter is really proud of himself for offering to forgive up to seven times, and Jesus says, why not 70 times seven? It's possible that Jesus is referring kind of um, indirectly to the seven times seven years that lead up to the Jubilee in Leviticus 25, which Meredith talked about a couple weeks ago, in which case he's basically saying, since the Jubilee has arrived in me, you should act like it by forgiving 70 times seven, an unlimited number of times. And to underscore this point, he tells a story about a foolish king. I say this because the king has apparently loaned one of his servants more money than was in circulation in all of Galilee at the time. But to read it like that is kind of to miss the point. The point is not exactly how much money has been loaned or whether it is realistic or not. It's not. 10,000 talents is used because 10,000 is the largest single number in the numbering system of the day. You could have a bigger number, but it would be like five ten thousands or 25 ten thousands. 10,000 was the biggest standalone number, so to speak. And then a talent was the largest unit of weight at the time. So 10,000 talents is basically a way of saying the biggest amount you can think of, an absurd amount. If you were trying to convert it into money today, it would be in the tens of billions of dollars which is now, as then, an absurd amount for a king to have loaned to a servant. And it's even more absurd that the king just forgives the debt, which is, of course, Jesus' whole point. God is absurdly forgiving, to the point of being made a fool. Be like that. But the servant isn't like that. The servant goes and accosts his fellow servant for a comparatively small debt. But... And this is a point that I have yet to ever see a pastor or a scholar make, and it kind of bugs me. This is not a minuscule debt that the second servant owes to the first one. A hundred dinars or denarii would have been the wages for 100 days of work. It is basically a third of a working man's yearly salary. We're talking tens of thousands of dollars, something like that. Now, is it way smaller than the absurd amount of the first debt? Of course, but it is not 
a trivial amount. It would seriously cost the servant something to forgive this debt, and he should do so anyway, because of the king's generosity to him. This is an important distinction to make. The fact that Jesus's sacrifice on our behalf is so great in comparison to what we have to give ourselves, that doesn't mean that we are called to sacrifice something easy or trivial. The sacrifice to love others like Jesus loves us will hurt. It will cost us something. And we do it anyway because that's the only response to what Jesus has already done for us. And now in contrast, if we stand on our rights, well, God might just do the same and stand on God's rights. I think that I have the right to fill in the blank is a statement that basically no Christian should ever make. It's not the way God works with us. It's not the way God expects us to operate with one another either. Now, Matthew then takes us to another instance of broken relationships from forgiveness to divorce. A couple of things before we get into what Jesus says here. We should remember that we're talking about arranged marriages here. That's the context of what what Jesus is saying. Second, in Roman law, either party could initiate a divorce for pretty much any reason. In Jewish law, the man could initiate a divorce, but the woman could not. But there was disagreement in the Jewish community over what a valid reason was for initiating a divorce. The debate comes down to the interpretation of the words of Moses that a man could divorce his wife if he finds something, and this is the quote, indecent or unseemly about her. Now, what does that mean? Well, for the rabbi Shammai, that meant infidelity, indecent in a sexual sense. For the rabbi Hillel, it meant any unseemly act not just sexual, but even burning the bread is unseemly for a wife to do and therefore would be grounds for divorce. And then for the rabbi Akiba, it meant even if she looks unseemly, as in if you find a prettier model, you can trade the old one in. There was a range of interpretations is what I'm saying. And Jesus comes down in more or less the same spot as Shammai. In the case of unfaithfulness, divorce is an option because in effect, the marriage has already been broken. There are some scholars who look for a more limited meaning of the word that's translated immorality in our Bibles or something like that. Some say it might just refer to prostitution or incest, but most of the scholars I read argued that those cases are more limited than what that word would normally mean, and we should go with what the normal meaning of this word is unless we have a really good reason not to. And so unfaithfulness or immorality is the best translation in light of that. Divorce in such cases would be more like a recognition that the marriage has already ended because of the unfaithfulness of, in this case, the wife. However, I think even in those cases, we should remember that our God is a God of reconciliation and that even dead marriages can be resurrected, so to speak. One other note, today some people argue that Jesus allowed divorce but not remarriage. This is kind of anachronistic. The whole point of divorce in the ancient world was to allow for remarriage. No one was getting divorced and then remaining single. So if divorce is allowed, so is remarriage, basically by definition. Even so, the disciples are shocked. If this is true, it would be better not to get married at all, they say, which is quite a statement when you stop to think about it. Jesus' response is to hold up eunuchs as a viable option. I've often passed over this part of the passage as kind of a curious statement But the scholars I read on this chapter pointed out that what Jesus says here might have been even more shocking than what he said about marriage and divorce. Eunuchs, you see, 
were almost universally looked down upon in the ancient world. They were defective men, gender nonconforming men, men who had had their whole identity stripped from them. They weren't manly. They couldn't procreate. And most cultures at the time saw procreation as a responsibility for any adult man. It wasn't optional. But now Jesus is saying procreation, well, it isn't at the heart of existence. The kingdom of God is here and it expands not from procreation, but from the witness of followers of Jesus. It also should be noted eunuchs couldn't procreate. That's true, but they weren't seen as asexual. In fact, they're sometimes depicted as particularly promiscuous in ancient literature, just promiscuous in deviant and immoral ways in the eyes of the culture at the time, which all makes it quite shocking that Jesus holds them up as models to be emulated. It would be better not to be married at all, the disciples say, and Jesus says, yes, look at the eunuchs. You should be like them. I wonder why these verses aren't ever mentioned when evangelicals talk about what the Bible has to say about queer people. Hmm. Matthew moves on to a discussion of wealth. (laughs) Speaking of things the Bible is quite clear about, wealth is one of the things that Jesus has the most to say about, and almost all of it is negative. It's another surprising thing about Jesus's core message. Wealth was usually seen in the ancient world as a symbol of divine blessing, but Jesus sees it more like a curse. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, Let's be abundantly clear here. There was no needle gate in the walls of Jerusalem that camels had to go through on their knees or something. So Jesus is actually saying that rich people need to get on their knees and pray or some such nonsense. If you've ever heard that from a pastor, I'm sorry, they didn't know what they were talking about. (laughs) Jesus is doing the same thing here as the 10,000 talents idea. The camel was the largest animal in the region. The eye of a needle would have been the smallest hole anyone would have regular contact with in their daily life. The whole point is that it is as possible for a rich person to enter the kingdom as it is for the largest thing you can think of to go through the smallest hole you can think of. It's impossible, but God can work miracles. And let's close with the story in chapter 20 of the workers in the vineyard. There are a couple interesting aspects to the story. The 12-hour day pictured here would have only happened during the harvest when it was imperative to get the ripe fruit off the vine and processed as quickly as possible before it goes bad. The day laborers were a common feature of the economy. Um, Either they would have been landless, meaning that their only way of supporting a family was by finding work like this, or they may have been... um, Small landowners had small farms of their own, and then they would hire themselves out after they had finished work on their own land. This might be what's in mind for those who get hired later on in the day in the story. They may have worked their own farms in the morning and then gone out to find work after that. In any event, the master in the story goes out at roughly 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., and 5 p.m. to hire laborers. And this is for a workday that ends at 6 p.m. When the landowner gives out the wages, he starts with the usual wage for a day's work, a denarii or a dinar. And the ones who worked all day think the generosity is going to extend to them as well. But the point of the story is not generosity, it's justice. And the grumbling that some engage in when they don't like God's justice. Justice is done to the workers who worked all day. They are given the wages that they agreed to. But justice is done in another sense to those who only worked for an hour. 
The landowner recognizes that these workers cannot support a family, which we should assume they needed to do since the vast majority of men at the time had families. They can't support a family on one hour's work. And so he pays them for a full day's work. Do they deserve that? Not from our capitalist framework. They did one hour of work. The right thing would be one hour's pay. And it seems like the workers who worked all day would agree with us there. But justice, in God's eyes, and in ancient Jewish society, is a broader framework than that. Justice is when we do right by each other. When we give one another what is right in the context of our relationships. The poor staying poor is not justice. It is not how the world of God's kingdom works. And so the landowner does justice by paying the workers enough to support a family, no matter how much they worked, because that's what's right, even if it's not what's fair. But won't workers start to take advantage of a landowner like that and only work an hour and get a day's pay? Maybe so. But our God doesn't seem to mind being made a fool for our sake as I've mentioned several times in these backdrop episodes and in my sermons on some of the parables that Jesus tells in these chapters and the ones that follow. That, though, is enough for now, I think. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Backdrop on Matthew chapters 18 to 20. I'll be back next time with chapters 21 to 23. I hope you found this interesting, that it gave you a better understanding of what Matthew is telling us in these chapters and uh, what it all means for us today. So I'll see you again next time. Bye. Bye.